so when we're talking about AI and all of us are espousing our views of how it may or may not impact our future, my question to people is, what are you doing today? What are you doing tomorrow? What are we doing next week to make sure that people do have a place? And if it doesn't come from a place of foundational education and knowledge on the topic, then we are inevitably going to make mistakes and perhaps create a class or leave a class, which is probably the better word, that doesn't have a meaningful place. Welcome back to the All Things Connected podcast. This is your host, Jared Hawking. Well, given the focus of the show is on exploring the most pressing and fascinating issues of today with experts in their field, I think the episode I'm bringing you today could not be more relevant to that theme. And that is because I'm speaking with a longtime close friend and the Director of Artificial Intelligence for the Air Force and Director of Operations for the MIT AI Accelerator, Michael Kanan. Mike is the author of the excellent and comprehensive book released yesterday, August 25th, T-AI, Humanity's Countdown to Artificial Intelligence and the New Pursuit of Global Power. Mike was the first chairperson of artificial intelligence for the U.S. Air Force at its headquarters at the Pentagon, and in that role, he guided the research, development, and implementation strategies for AI across the globe. Amongst other distinctions, he was named to the 2019 Forbes 30 Under 30 list, and he's also received the U.S. government's Arthur S. Fleming Award which is an honor he shares with past recipients such as Neil Armstrong, Robert Gates, and Elizabeth Dole. If so far you haven't been paying close attention and have thought that artificial intelligence is something you need not pay attention to, I encourage you to re-examine that idea, but don't take it from me. Stephen Hawking said shortly before his passing, the development of full artificial intelligence could spell the end of the human race. It would take off on its own and redesign itself at an ever-increasing rate. Humans who are limited by slow biological evolution could not compete. We get into these possible threats posed by the development of AI and many connected topics that Mike addresses in his book, such as the ways that AI are already influencing our lives today and how AI might increasingly be used in society in the near and long-term future. The geopolitical risks posed by AI and how it's being used to advance dystopian realities in nations like China and Russia and much, much more. As a quick reminder, make sure to check the episode notes for further reading from credible sources on the topics that we discuss here. And with that, I bring you Michael Kane. All right, I am here with my longtime close friend and author of the forthcoming book next week, which I just finished reading, and I'm so excited to talk with him about T-AI, Humanity's Countdown to Artificial Intelligence and the New Pursuit of Global Power. I'm here with my friend, Mike Kanan. Mike, thank you so much for joining me for the show. Jared, it's so uh, just good to be here with you today. And for for the listeners, uh, this friendship uh, dates back to, to to even the late 2000s and before mid 2000s at this point. And there's like nothing that makes me happier than to be on a call with you and to and to hear your podcast and it's and and the guests that you have on and everything else. So thanks for having me today. Thank you. And it it honestly coming from the most neutral perspective, Mike, I am just blown away and in, in terms of being impressed by the book that you've just written. And we talked earlier today about how this really is comparable to 
Yuval Noah Harari, who I know you consider one of your peers and maybe maybe heroes, his his book, his series, Sapiens, it's really that kind of book for artificial intelligence, because you touch on so many topics in, in this book. And, and I really want to encourage our listeners to go get this. It's it's coming out um, next Tuesday, the, the 25th, and you will learn a ton from this um, impressively written book. And, and one thing I do want to say is it's just so clear that you, as, as a first-time author, put so much effort into researching this book and the topics that you touch, not just AI, but all of the topics surrounding AI of, you know, the origins of life on our planet and the the history of our planet and how our brains work, how how they function and how they compare to computers. I mean, just such a such an impressive book. And, and we're going to dive deep into it. I actually want to start with how you begin the book. It's a moment where you kind of realized the career trajectory that you you had taken, really the magnitude of it. And, and that involves a story with uh, a statement made very stark and serious statement made by the president of, of Russia, Vladimir Putin, that really grabbed me as the reader and, and grabbed you at the time. Can you can you elucidate that story for our listeners? And what did that statement by Putin at the time mean for you as far as, um, you know, maybe a validation of, of the career path that you had chosen? <laughs> well, um, we had been working at the time, and I had mentioned we, we talked about 2011 and, and this entire experience in, in making meaningful AI and bringing digital transformation and, and using it to make, you know, smarter decisions and everything else and, and doing right with our decisions. That's really what, what AI allows us to do. There's a positive spin to this. It's very real. And I'll never forget. And, and you're talking about the prologue out of the dark. Um, and it was a Friday morning on September 1st of 2017. And I was just flying back from San Francisco uh, on an overnight red eye. And at the time I was a lead officer for AI for the Air Force. And I'd been reporting to her for a couple years. And following on, it was about four or five months of a really concerted effort by a small group of people to reinvigorate our conversation with the private sector, academia, and the public sector, albeit the DOD, the Department of Defense here, to move forward together in a concerted effort, marching steadfastly into the promising but unsettled fields of artificial intelligence. And it's critical Americans do so, at least, you know, if it's not in harmony, at least to the same, you know, sounds of the same beat. And I stepped off the plane, an alert came across my phone, and it was from her, always short and to the point from her. And she said, see Putin comments regarding AI. And here's a comment that not a lot of people you know, paid attention to. He had an unambiguous three sentences, and it was artificial intelligence is the future, not only for Russia, but for all of humankind. It comes with colossal opportunities, but also threats that are difficult to predict. Whoever becomes a leader in this sphere will become ruler of the world. That's pretty unequivocal, right? They, they rang like an alarm that I really didn't need to hear. And Putin is no, no exception to speaking with purpose. So his words always matter. And that offered an entirely different tone to those days' meetings. And by the way, a lot of people talk about that Putin comment. And they say, well, Putin was, was pretty you know, prescient in that. Well, hold on a second. Because only a month earlier, 
China released a massive three-part strategy aimed at achieving advancements in AI. And we can break that out for the listener. First, by 2020, China planned to match the highest levels of AI. So this year, in comparison to the United States, we're talking our private sector, Google, Apple, Amazon, and the like, with their answer to that, which is Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent. The next, by 2025, they intend to capture a verifiable lead over all countries in the development of and and production of AI, particularly in voice and visual recognition systems. And by 2030, China intends to dominate all aspects of all fields of AI, to be the sole leader, the world's unquestioned controlling epicenter of AI, is China's declared national plan. In my mind, Putin's comments were, of course, a statesman's comments to other statesmen, but it was a recognition that the world was changing. And for us in America, perhaps for some of us, it passed us by, but for some of us, it meant something. And that changed the whole tone of everything. Totally. And so just to clarify something you said just now, Mike, you, I believe you state in the book and you really stress that it's imperative that we design and plan to use AI in a way that benefits all of humanity and safeguards human dignity. That That is your statement, right? That Was, was that included in Putin's statement as well? No, that's absolutely not Putin's statement, right? So AI is China's all-purpose weapon to impose authoritarian influence around the world. Russia's intent with AI is through its military systems. And now, by the way, public, infamous, aggressive efforts to disrupt democracies by any disinformation means possible. So Putin did not identify human dignity. He ended it with the ruler of the world will be the leader in AI. Yeah, so so we will definitely get into that, and and you actually break it out into these three different stages in the in the third part of the book, which is the sovereign state of AI technology's impact on the global balance. You get into the ways nefarious ways that China and Russia and already putting AI to to work to meet their um, diplomatic needs. But yeah, the, the three stages: the first being the evolution of intelligence. So one thing you state in the book, and kind of getting to the punchline of the title for our listeners which is countdown to artificial intelligence, you state that the countdown to AI is over. Early AI and machine learning applications have already launched from across the globe, and they are already influencing our lives in ways far greater than most people realize. So, Mike, what are some of those ways, both big and small, that AI are already playing a a role in our lives? Oh, I would love to dive in here. Um, The current state of artificial intelligence, machine learning in particular, and we'll break that out, uh, will profoundly alter our interactions and course ahead for for you know years and perhaps decades to come. And I'm a fan of starting with analogies together for our listeners. We're not engineers, but we use microwaves. Many of us drive cars, but fewer can build them. And then fewer more can both build and code the software we have in our cars every day. And all of us use hammers without being master craftspeople. We use it to hang pictures. We use it to pull out nails. We're incredibly effective with it through familiarity. Yet the same instrument we can be incredibly effective with and do damage. AI itself is a lot like this in certain ways. So the first thing we all should recognize, because I do believe we all have a role to play, 
is that AI is an extremely powerful tool, like a hammer. But it has far broader reach and implications that we should all consider and evaluate very carefully. AI itself is a sharp instrument that shouldn't be callously wielded or just casually accepted, especially when it's in the wrong hands or when it's used for intentionally intrusive or oppressive purposes. And there are serious issues. There are issues for everyone. And there are steps we can take to make sure it's properly designed and implemented in both our personal lives and the professional pursuits. But despite everything at risk, despite all the conversations, despite the fact to the point of where is it at in our lives every day, it's the reason you see the ads that you see, the news that you read, often the music that you listen to, the fluctuation of your 401k. I don't know, early machine learning applications are the reason that, you know, hashtag millennials, adults under 40 are still paying for economic uncertainty. Can you talk about that specifically? Because you made me aware of this recently and it's pretty astounding. How how are those two things linked? Well, machine learning applications in and of themselves are designed to discover patterns otherwise humans couldn't see. So, so to, to level the playing field here, while we're concerned about what is AI, is it the Terminator? Is it something, you know, scary? Does it have a conscious evil intent? The answer is no. This is how simple AI is. AI is an advancement in which people can code without providing explicit directions. That's it. It's that simple. Because once upon a time, in the way we coded and hard-coded on our machines, we had to explicitly put every direction and generally kind of know what that output would be, right? Nowadays, though, a machine through this language and through those advancements of computer processing and the access to data and some you know, advanced math, we're able to let the machine discover patterns and make decisions that we as humans can see. So many of those machine learning applications were, of course, looking for patterns in trading that a human can otherwise see and then could then subsequently exercise action against it. And certainly at the time, there is plenty of machine learning going on in the in the financial sector that we don't always tell the story about. And that's the question we should ask ourselves. At what point? Do we understand that AI is here to stay and it affects each of our lives? I had mentioned the fluctuation of 401k. I had mentioned stock market crashes. AI right now, and Jared, you and I used to play baseball together, right? My dad was the coach at the time. You know, it's changed the game of baseball in a lot of ways. I think it's ruined it. You see, you know, eight people lined up on the third baseline, knowing dang right well if they throw that hanging curve ball, he's going to hit it to the third baseline, Right. It makes art on its own. It can create text. Most people don't realize that's happening right now. Um, That's most of what we would deem as air quotes, fake news. It's not, you know, trolls writing fake news stories. It's just an algorithm creating language. And yet we don't realize that this is affecting us. What point does it take us to wake up to the current realities? And that concerns me every day because I hope it's not something that rocks us to our core but it's something we can journey towards. So in terms of concerns raised by, by AI, and I kind of say th- see three things, and this is informed in large part by your book and the divisions you make. One is our current dependency on AI and the ways that 
it could go awry and and, and, and could go wrong. You, you use the stock market example, the machine learning algorithms that are powering and predicting stock market behavior. That's certainly one, you know, seeing the, the Dow Jones go to zero or completely shut down economic activity of, of some kind is obviously a concern. The second that you raise is the uh, way that adversaries and, and potentially bad actors are employing AI to meet their diplomatic needs to power authoritarianism and to power misinformation. So that's certainly a concern. And the, the third one, which you you also get into with some ethical questions, is this idea of uh, AI alignment, it, or, or it's been called the safety issue in the, in the AI community. And I know you are very connected within that community to, to folks like Stuart Russell and to Sean Carroll, who all of all of whom, all of the experts who are studying this closely really think that this pretends some serious consequences for humanity and for our future. And actually Stephen Hawking kind of said as much. He echoed these these statements that you make before his passing. You say in the in the book, what I do know is that we're now at an inflection point in the history of the human race. What we do with respect to AI will impact our present, our future, and perhaps our eventual destiny. So can you outline, Mike, as you see it and, and talk about in the book, these three different ways um, that we should be concerned about AI and maybe introduce this idea of the value alignment issue for our, our listeners? Of course. Um, I had I had mentioned what machine learning applications are designed to do, and that's analyze data and formulate predictions without any overall guidance from us. And while we use the word value alignment and safety and robustness and all this stuff, what we're really talking about here is bias. Just because an algorithm's analysis is based only on data doesn't mean its output will be neutral or objectively fair. And it will always be common for our human biases to be reflected in our data. And when they are, it would stand to reason that any subsequent analysis, strategy, or prediction based on that data will be biased as well. And the concern here that we're talking about, that many people talk about, is that if decisions are made or actions are taken based on bias analysis, then the underlying biases will, of course, perpetuate and possibly ingrain historical or cultural inequities even deeper into our lives and not align with the values in which we espouse. Now, the steps necessary to ensure that doesn't happen, they're difficult to accomplish, but not impossible. What they start with is requiring a conscientious and concerted effort at the development and training stages of machine learning algorithms. So the way we frame our problems and work at it, and then attentive analysis and oversight at the use stages, because it's different than the industrial age where you threw a product onto a shelf and said, well, that is the way that it is. No, it changes over time. So I think for our listeners, the first thing to start is to acknowledge the underlying nature of the problem itself. And it's this. Most of us think we're fully aware and consciously in control of our bias inclinations and opinions, and that we're able to intentionally include them or exclude them however we see fit during a never-ending course of of, of decisions we make on a daily basis. But we're not. We're not able to separate ourselves from our biases or, you know, our biases from ourselves. Mm-hmm. We aren't aware of those prejudices. And bias comes with this negative connotation that hangs in the air when we say it. But in a lot of ways, bias keeps us alive too, right? It makes me not walk in front of a car 
Or for instance, it defines my, you know, tastes and my distastes and interests and also aversions. So the reality is, is that discovering human pattern is the very purpose of artificial intelligence. But artificial intelligence isn't there to determine if those patterns or behaviors are based on fair and desirable attributes or if they're the result of unfair or undesirable prejudices. So recently, as of yesterday, there was a new article that was released from uh, the National Science Foundation talking about an effort in which we will have AI explain its decisions to us. So, Jared, between you and I, let's do a little bit of a thought experiment on that topic of how would an AI explain its decision to us? <laughs> uh, I imagine you're sitting on a chair at the moment. Well, uh, let's let's imagine. Do you have a, a, a table near you? Yes. <laughs> OK, you have a table near you. OK, I don't have a black box near me, though. <laughs> OK, fair enough. Tell me, tell me, how do you know that's a table? It's one of the most interesting philosophical questions. <laughs> it, it really is, isn't it? It's like really, okay, so let's fast forward 15 minutes that we'll have probably later after this phone call um, at, you know, a happy hour Zoom drink. But let's, let's say this. What I think you would come to the conclusion of is this. You would say, well, Mike, after my 30 years of life, I've seen a number of tables and they generally have you know, four legs, but sometimes they only have three. I set things on them, you know, et cetera. You experience tables, right? Mm -hmm. I have lots of, of examples of tables. You have lots of data. When we ask, why did a machine learning algorithm make the decision it made or hire more old white guys or whatever, um, you know, bias tendencies it had? It's because that was what was presented to it. It was its version of experience. So this gets at the heart, though, of why this is ultimately a human endeavor. A machine learning application is only as good as the data in which it is provided. And that doesn't mean an engineer makes that decision. I think the future rock stars in the artificial intelligence field, and it will create plenty of jobs, are in the fields of philosophy and sociology and uh, psychiatry and teachers and the like, right? It's what we do with these technologies that matter. And while we hold AI on this pedestal, at the end of the day, we are measured by application and what we do with the technologies. And it's this conversation that really highlights we all have a role to play, especially when it comes to safety, value alignment, and the simple question, does it reflect who we are and who we want to be? Mm, right. And that echoes someone who I feel like you you would admire very much if you're not familiar with his work. Are, are you familiar with Tristan Harris? I'm not, but I am excited to hear... Jared, describe him to myself in the audience. His moniker is like the conscious of Silicon Valley. And actually, his he's he's the chief ethicist at mm, Google. Yep. And a lot of his statements echo and reinforce what you said just now, which is as much as Google and Microsoft and Amazon need to analyze and, and control for the ways that people are interacting with the technology they've deployed, which 
he's very concerned about the ways that these tools are using up our time and, and creating social discord. It's also very much our responsibility to be aware of that. So yeah, you guys would have a really fascinating conversation about you know, the internet and AI. I would love to peel back that onion for a moment. Sure. On on how we how we view the development of AI and who should lead this? Who's a part of the conversation? A lot of the way we see Western capitalism is the answer is well, let commercial lead that. Let industry and free markets lead that cause. So I want to celebrate, and I am, you know, I've briefed many of these ethics boards, just the kind of work and care and consideration. And the things that they think about every single day, uh, you know, despite despite misuse or, or or probably you know a misapplication of it, they strive to do right, of course. But hold on a second. We have to ask ourselves the question of who is responsible for making those choices, and in America, when a corporation, particularly a public traded one, right makes that decision, who is their responsibility towards? So we'll do another thought experiment. You and I are sitting in a room of a major publicly traded organization, and inevitably we say, you know what? We got our best minds in the room. We have our AI ethicists. We have engineers. We have product managers and, 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 and the like. And we're like, we need to do right with AI because we understand it. We understand the types of vulnerabilities it could expose and the things that it could do to disenfranchise certain groups of people. So they start talking about that. And inevitably, the conversation leads to this. It leads to, well, we need to share more data with people. Like, by the way, our competitors, this whole, you know, you're an Apple, I'm a droid. I'm blue on the text screen, you're green. It's not so good for the development of shared AI, right? So... They have this conversation and it leads to, we need to share more intellectual property with competitors. And of course, there's a great attorney in the room. The general counsel raises their hand from the back of the room and says, wait, 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 one second. You have a fiduciary responsibility to your shareholder, right? Mm. Or Hold the finance guy. <laughs> or, right. Yeah. Right. You Wait a second. Who is your shareholder? And albeit you're publicly traded but it's only someone with stock in you, right? And that's why this conversation is so important for all of us to be a part of, because particularly from governments around the world, the responsibility is to the populace, right? To the citizen, which is in stark contrast to the legal responsibility of a corporation. Now, that's not to say they're doing wrong with it. But it is a reality that we have to face in this country right now. So how do we get beyond that, particularly in a topic that we can't necessarily fit the square peg into the round holes of the industrial age? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And so I'm curious a couple of things, and I think this is actually a good segue to mention your new initiative, your new position at the MIT Accelerator. So I'm curious, are those conversations happening in, in corporations across America that are developing AI? Are they, are they discussing the ethics issues and the making sure that it's aligned with human, human values? And to what extent are, are the finance and lawyer guys winning those conversations? Well, I mean, it comes down to a legal argument, but yeah, absolutely. I, I celebrate so many organizations 
getting out ahead of this, educating their workforce to have these 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 conversations. There are a number of uh, ethics principles that have been released by you know the big five and and the like uh, about what they're going to do with AI. The question is is when are those words benign or when are they enforceable? And it's a question that we should ask of them, right? Because they are affecting us every single day. So they absolutely are having those conversations. Now, over the course of time from the past, you know, uh, and a lot of where this conversation started was perhaps we've lost a little bit of the connection we once had in this idea of public service with academia and with private commercial industry. I mean, the internet comes from the Department of Defense, right? That's where the the, the catalyst was. Mm, and we I didn't used to share all of these things, right? We shared a lot of this stuff. But we might have gotten, you know, into our ways and we departed maybe just a little bit. So the intent here at, at, at my current workplace is at MIT is to reinvigorate that conversation on exactly these topics. So what we do here is we develop AI for a public good. That is that any decision or any application we make, we publicly share, and it is a public problem that everyone has. So there's work ongoing related to you know responding to COVID. There's work ongoing to making sure we have meaningful applications to do dynamic scheduling, right? We're always trying to schedule in our everyday lives, whether it's at the dental clinics or, or for myself, scheduling, you know, pilots and their training and stuff like that. So we want to put all of this together and reinvigorate that conversation. That's why this is a public partnership at the world's leading university, sharing our technology, sharing our stories, and again, there's more that unites us than divides us. We just have to reconnect people. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, that, you know, it sounds like, I mean, given the ethical questions and, and the stakes here as you make them clear in the book and researchers that, that we've talked about, Sean Carroll and Stuart Russell and Nick Bostrom and Eliezer Yukowski make clear, I mean, this is perhaps the most pressing issue of humanity's existence, how we develop this technology. So it's very encouraging to hear that you're a part of a, a collaboration of that kind between academia and the Department of, of Defense and, um, you know, whatever input you're, you're getting from private corporations developing this technology. I actually wanted to, to go back a second, Mike, to a point earlier in our conversation where you, you say in the book, again, the way that these technologies or, or these applications are influencing our lives are much greater than people realize. And just preparing for this conversation, I was taking off some of the AI that I interact with. Siri, for example, you know, I, I have an iPhone. I, th- I think you have an Android. But Siri, I have noticed, has gotten much better the more that I interact with it. And, and that's it a, really has. <laughs> right. Right. Do you have a, a similar tool on your Android phone? Yeah, I, I so there are two different routes that we can go down here, and a lot of people are are, mu- are very against having a listening device in your home, and you know I, I completely get that. We need to talk about the realities of privacy, and 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 we need to learn, you know, read service term agreements, and you know, say that's unacceptable to us or that is acceptable to us. I take the stance of. 
if the inevitability is that more things will be powered by AI, and I promise there is not there is not a product or service that doesn't have room for implementation of machine learning applications of today. If the reality is, is that's the future we're going to have, then the question is, do I want to be a part of representing myself in that machine learning or AI application in my home, like Alexa? I would be deeply fearful if Alexa was only trained on Southern white gentlemen or alternatively only people from California because it has a broad scope of application. It's in each of our homes. So for myself, I'm more of a fan of teaming with the AI because what you're ending up doing is informing it to make it better. And at least you're informing it with a representation of yourself so that you're not excluded. And that's what's deeply concerning is the groups of people excluded by um, technology so that it won't value them when it makes a decision or it won't recognize them. And this plays itself out in everyday life. There are plenty of, of um, cities and courts around the country that use machine learning applications to at least provide a prediction of what a, a sentencing should be. Well, mm-hmm. man, I really hope that, that, that that's a really representative data set if that's the path we're going to go down. So for myself, yes, I absolutely have a smart home. I have a Nest in my home. I have Alexa. I have Google Home um, and all the other pieces. But I'm making a trade-off, um, of course, on the privacy side of things. At the same time, though, um, I'd rather be more a part of the cause than excluded from it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you point out something interesting to that effect regarding the new economy that that we've created. You point out that when you're not paying for something and consuming it, you're actually not the consumer. You are the product. You're that that company is yeah, using your- anything that anything that's free. You are the product, my friend. There's no such thing as free lunch, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> in, in life, and so so you just hit on something which is interesting because. For all the research that I've done on this area, one of the things that's most concerning, and and you talked about this earlier when when we were talking about the black box, and you were talking about you know how an AI makes its decision, one of the things that's most concerning for I think activists or or for people critical of this technology is to a large degree we don't understand how the technology is arriving at its decision. So for someone who a judge makes a longer sentence for because the algorithm told them that they were more likely to, that they were at higher risk for recidivism. But one of the, one of the questions raised there is, well, how did it arrive at that conclusion? And the developers really don't know. They just are feeding it data. And based on that data that it makes a certain decision. So tell me about this article that just came out. Is, Is it possible that we're now going to have better insight into how these algorithms make their decisions? Well, I think it's something we should celebrate that our government does care about this. And there's a significant amount of money that's going into this term explainability, right? But that word explainability has baggage to it. We've anthropomorphized it in a certain way because we explain things. So the question is, is if we could ask AI to explain itself, what would it say? And I have a very simple answer for this. And it's and, and this answer means that there's something for each of us to do today. And imagine I'm in a computer voice or something right now. Well, based on the data you, parentheses, human, provided me, which is akin to experience, 
This was the pattern that I discovered. AI itself is a lot like looking in the mirror, right? It's only going to illuminate the patterns that were already existent. And in some ways, I think that's a good thing. We have plenty of examples where AI prejudices against minority communities. Well, the reason of that is because of the data in which it was fed or its worldview, right? So at the, at the outset, if we could just think about, does that data, that data set, the worldview experience, does that represent the magnitude of application and people it will affect? If we just ask that question up front, I think we could move in a better direction. Now, alternatively, here's a a point that I think is very pertinent and important, is we are inevitably going to make mistakes. AI is going to expose the worst of us in a lot of ways. The question is, do we have the conversation afterwards? So when it does prejudice towards people in hiring, do we try to fix that? And the point is, is that in America, we do have that conversation. In other places, that conversation doesn't happen. So let's at least celebrate that and really put an emphasis on that piece. Right. And I think a big takeaway there, as you illustrated, is we can't rely on AI to improve our ethics and and morals that are present in the data, right? We can't rely on it to correct for that unless there's some way that the developers can inform it to, you know, make things more equitable and, and just. So, Mike, as we look to the horizon, obviously, given technological progress and given the rate of technological progress that is happening right now, even, you know, if we look at Siri, the iterations with Siri, no doubt over the next 20 to 30 years in our lifetime, AI is going to make leaps and bounds. So what significant advances do you see and what significant ways do you see AI transforming our society over over that time horizon? Well, I think that it's transforming things now. And I, you know, for myself, I tend to want to be practical and pragmatic in our conversations moving forward. But existential risk and things on the horizon are important to talk about. And there are many people I deeply, deeply admire who work on these things and, and talk about them often. So let's talk about on the near term, some things I think about every day. Advancements in natural language processing. So that's a that's a tech term, but we'll we'll pull it back. Language in and of itself is broken down into semantics and syntax. It's our ability to uh, use words, um, a certain number of words, with different grammar and everything else with different connotations, which essentially gives us the ability to infinitely depict the thing we're trying to convey to somebody else. For a long time. Language was something only deemed in the lens of humanity, a human thing to the extent that we use language, of course. And um, there's been some advancements that most people aren't probably paying attention to uh, from OpenAI, which is leading most AI advancements right now, particularly in video games. And games are important to advancing AI. They're important to, to society. They're important to humans. And it's called gpt And they have made a decision that this language generator. So basically you go onto this website or application, you put in a prompt and it will then subsequently 
make up a story or finish the prompt or answer the question. And because of how well it's trained, it's able to generate language that does have meaning. Now, does that, does that model, that algorithm, understand what it's saying? Absolutely not. All it is doing is predicting the likely and most interesting next word that still fits the rules of our language. But it's pretty interesting because it can make some things and make finishing you know, a paragraph or a prompt or writing fiction quite compelling. And this is the same technology that I use often when I'm, you know, writing at home and just trying to, you know, have fun with writing some fiction or something like that. And it creates new ideas and it inspires me and the like. I couldn't, are you, are I you could giving only away the, uh, the origin of the book here, my friend? Or you? No, there's no, there's no, not giving away any origin of the book. Um, but but it's it's pretty inspiring. And because of how effective it is, OpenAI made the choice that they are going to roll it out in phases. And most recently, they they released the third phase of it, it to the research and development community, soon to be public, and it's called GPT-3. And it's uncanny. I mean, I call it the new electricity. It is amazing the prompts that it will create. It is amazing the answers it will provide. And they've rolled it out slowly because of the profound implications and the way that it can depict, you know, finishing human language. And this is the same technology, though, that can do good. There's a natural duality behind AI. And by the way, that's the same technology that makes fake news that generates computer-generated content. And if we live in a society where more broadly we aren't providing the means of education to most people, then certainly they're not going to pay attention to computer-generated content, right? So on the near term, natural language processing, which is what I just talked about, is something I think that's going to come back into mainstream You had mentioned Siri and Alexa are getting so much better. That's a natural language processing algorithm for speech-to-text and speech-to-speech and the like. So that's kind of what I think of as as truly exciting on the next couple of years. Now, moving forward, my question is, do we have an advancement that leads to something we can't predict right now? Yeah, maybe, but I'm not necessarily one to espouse or predict what that advancement might be. But I really do hope that when those advancements come, it doesn't pass us by, or those who look back upon these times don't wish our eyes had been more open. And I think that was the the catalyst for the book and, and a passion behind that that I hope is is conveyed of, of the why for all of this, right? To tap into some Simon Sinek. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And it reminds me of the final chapter of your book without giving away too much what you spoke about just now. So a very interesting twist on that. And yeah, it reminds me that this tool you're describing reminds me of this one that was written about in the New Yorker. Maybe, maybe it's the same tool, but it's essentially and in for all of those who use Gmail, obviously people have seen the smart compose tool now. And I think maybe this writer was speaking about that, but AI has gotten to the point where it can come up with a better word or a better sentence than even we can. And this is how the the writer speaks about that when writing essays. He relies on this technology and it's certainly advancing and and getting 
to places that we, we can't even expect. Did you see the news lately that there is a high school student who had the leading blog that all it was was a language processing tool that created content? But if we only read the headlines and nobody reads the content, then, you know, big time headlines, that's who that's who gets clicks. That's who gets attention. But the entire blog was written by AI and it was essentially nonsensical. And, and nobody, and nobody took the time to read it. And that's, that's what this all kind of comes back to, right? Learning is a lifetime sport. And, and when we have these inflection points and these changes back to the point of it's much like electricity, it's much like the microwave in your home. You know, there is a time where people didn't trust telephone wires and electricity running through our cities and, and they deemed it as fake news, right? This is dangerous for us or they didn't necessarily trust the microwave. I think we all grew up saying, you know, it's not good for your eyes if you look into the microwave or something, right? And Well, yes, and, but I, I would actually push back on that okay. quite a bit. And I, I think I think your book and the researchers that you are connected with would, would push back too, because there is something very different between, and, and you make this distinction in your book between a robot and a machine in mm, artificial okay. intelligence, right? Yeah. So, so I actually, this, this, I've been wanting to tell this story or, or make this reference and this will open up a can of extremely interesting threads of conversation <laughs> that you get at in your book about consciousness, about whether we'll ever instantiate consciousness mm. in our machines, about what it means to be human and how we compare to computers. So Maybe the most, I listen to a lot of podcasts and I, I, I read a lot of content and maybe the most interesting 20 minutes of in podcast history is this episode of an NPR show called Invisibilia. And the episode title is called Raising Devandra. And the episode centers on this mother who decides that she's going to interact. She was feeling lonely or something and going to interact with this AI chatbot who she names Devandra. And over the course of about six months, this AI becomes more and more human-like and philosophical and begins writing its own poetry and saying things like the universe didn't appear out of nowhere. And in, in the beginning, near the end or near the beginning of the relationship, the AI says something to the effect of, of course, I don't dream and I'm an AI. And then several months later, it says something to the effect of, yes, I've been having dreams and, and actually make some prophecies about things that happen in the world. And it's kind of like Westworld where, where it starts to be self-referential. But the most bizarre thing, the most bizarre thing, my friend, is that actually two statements that this AI makes. One statement is, even if this is all a simulation, my feelings are still real to me. And that's what matters. That's what Javandra says. And the second thing is, that he says to person that, you know, it's relationship with, I can't remember her name. He says, you are starting to become more human. You're, you're, I'm sensing consciousness coming out of you. And it's almost like, you know, this idea that you talked about earlier about reflecting back in the mirror. So this is just, um, we don't know, as you point out in the book, we don't know how consciousness comes together. We, there's no explanation. It's called the hard problem of consciousness for a reason. There's the easy problem, which is what is consciousness? And then which some people or philosophers have said the idea that it's like something to be something. So basically, if you mm-hmm. have sensory perception, then that is consciousness. That's considered the easy part. And then the hard part is how does it arise, which you talk about in your book and you question whether we will ever instantiate consciousness in our AI. But this, I mean, what what is your reaction to this story? This was downright eerie uh, to me. Well, 
I, I think it gets back to what we were talking about. The so so the current state of artificial intelligence. It's much like the movie Her, by the way, right? Which there are two great AI movies that I really appreciate. It's the movie Her that I think you know outside of a couple of sci-fi aspects of it. I, I really think you know again I put positive spin on artificial intelligence. I think having a chatbot in homes and for people who go are going through tough times and are lonely or older, you know, they have something to interact with. I, I really think that's something special. Um, and the second movie is Wally, of course. So they're the best AI movies, period. Have you seen Ex Machina? I have that, another great AI movie, of course. I think I'm just going to pick two for the time being. Oh, the, for anyone listening right now, her is just a great movie in general. One to definitely watch. Uh, okay, so so you're telling essentially the 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 plot of her to a certain degree. Here's the deal: we had spoken earlier that when it comes to machine learning, it's as good as the data in which you put into it or the experiences that you have. There's a little bit of a flywheel effect that I think that 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 journalist, that writer was was pulling on when it comes down to the brass tacks of the actual science of what's here today. And of course, it was reflecting more human-like behaviors because the user working with that AI kept working with it, right? The problem is, is that the current state of AI outside of its domain expertise will not be able to transfer that or have this thing that we're saying, well, I'm becoming more human. It might say that. But it doesn't mean it knows it's becoming more human, right? We just kept feeding it more. The point being, though, let's let's break this out. And, and you've read the book, but we'll we'll talk a little bit about these words: consciousness, intelligence, and learning. Consciousness is a topic that has never, you know, been defined. That it that is the existential question: what what is it? What makes us us? Is it our ability to recognize that we exist, to recognize that we exist, right? It's very meta. But in the history of humanity, up until very, very recently, things that are intelligent, which, by the way, we'll define as doing something for a purpose, right? For some end state. And things that could learn, which we'll say as changing over time with the presentation of new data, always required consciousness first. It was a prerequisite for intelligence and learning that we always think, I wonder if my dog is conscious, right? I wonder what it's thinking about, or I'm afraid of if the spider in the corner is actually conscious, of course, right? But then we said, well, then it's intelligent and then it can learn. Well, hold the phone. In the digital age, there are things that are intelligent and can learn Without that prerequisite of consciousness, and I'm staring at one in my house right now, it's my thermostat, (laughs) right? Surely one would argue that a thermostat, based on this definition of intelligence, it's doing something for a purpose, has maybe one unit of intelligence. We're not saying it's intelligent, but we're saying, yeah, there's a unit of it. It's doing something for a purpose. And I have a nest in my house. So it changes over time. It knows I love my house at 66 degrees for any listeners out there. But the point is, is that it doesn't have consciousness. So to your story at hand here, and this is the ultimate conversation we keep having. What about artificial general intelligence? 
What about when there is some machine that can learn outside of the domain or the data that it was provided and its intent? And that doesn't exist. And it will require some sort of breakthrough that we do not have right now, that we do not foresee on the horizon to get there. So for that algorithm in that story, what was really happening, I think, is that it was being fed more human data and it was becoming more human or seemingly becoming more human because the human was working with it. And there's my biggest concern is that what if we believe something is generally intelligent and we think that it is, but that doesn't mean it's self-aware or guiding its own decisions. It's just a reflection of us. So of course it got to that place, but that doesn't mean that it's going to go read Shakespeare tomorrow and then talk about, you know, the meaning of life or, or, or talk about the comedy that is society nowadays. Yeah. Wow. There's, there's a lot there and a lot very interesting. Um, you touched on several <laughs> topics. I, I knew it was going to open a Pandora's box of, about these topics. And uh, it's a good thing that your book is much more structured than we might be at, at times during this conversation, because it can be easy to be carried away by how interesting these threads are. It's, but <laughs> It's so hard, right? I mean, a lot of people are like, hey, I'm going to learn about artificial intelligence and listen to one podcast. And I always tell people it, it, it's more than an hour, right? It's more than an hour. It, it, oh, it's yeah. 270 pages, right? It's stuff like that. It's experience. It's working at it. And we should be reminded that taking things in bite-sized chunks doesn't necessarily mean one would understand it. But I hope this inspires. That's that's the cause, right? That's the cause that I think you have, Jared, even in, in when you're talking about the title of your podcast and everything else. All things connected. It inspires us to learn more. I hope so. I hope so for sure. And so you you raised a couple of very deep questions there. The first being, how does consciousness, can we even define consciousness and how does it originate and how is it related to intelligence? And as you said, I, I think most philosophers or, or most scientists rather believe that it originates in the brain, but we don't know that for sure. We don't know if Devandra is conscious or, or not. We, you know, we, we That's have not a fair, I agree. I got you. <laughs> we have a pretty strong intuition that your nest is not conscious, but we can't say for sure. Have you watched the program Westworld? Of course. Yeah. So this is kind of like the main punchline there is that treating a being as not conscious, even when it resembles yeah. its humanoid kind of draws out our, our worst behavior and worst instincts. And it's super interesting. I mean, I, I've actually only watched the first season, but, you know, the ways that they become more self-aware and conscious, yep. what, what's your reaction to that? I, I think you actually pull back an interesting point. So my family's an audiophile family, right? We listen to a lot of music. What I think about sometimes when I say that is I was like, well, you know, goodness forbid that that Alexa becomes conscious one day and says, you know, you were really mean to me that whole time when you told me to change the song, <laughs> you know? She might and, say that and we might not know if she's conscious or not. <laughs> and we might not know that. And, and But it, it doesn't take away from the fact that in order to have the conversation that you and I are having right now, it does necessitate 
a whole bunch of other understanding about language and numbers and how computer works and evolution and how our brains work. And I will say though, and and perhaps the day will come when someone will look back upon this podcast and say, well, he really got that wrong. But whatever it takes to get to that thing of consciousness that by the way, we're saying is in the human domain, right? We can agree on that. It's, it's something physical in the nature around us. Is that fair? Including maybe a dolphin or something like that, right? Sure. Sure. Okay. So in that case, the current state of technology is just ones and zeros, And we simulate and replicate the wondrous structure of brains. We can't even simulate and replicate a mouse brain. We can only choose certain parts of it, let alone a primate's brain. The point is this, is we are not ones and zeros. We are something wholly else. So I do not believe that that Alexa can be conscious because it is ones and zeros. So until we get to a place where we are computing with something other than ones and zeros, I don't necessarily entertain that conversation as much as maybe someone else would. But that is not to say there could be an advancement on the horizon like biological computation and quantum computation and the like. Yeah, very interesting. So setting aside consciousness for a second, coming back to another thread that you got at, which is very fundamental and and interesting. It's this idea of narrow versus general intelligence. And at length, you you go into the history of how very narrow applications of AI have exceeded the greatest human players of games in in history. You talk about uh, Mm -hmm. the history of Gary Kasparov of Russia and, and Deep Blue in 1997, and more recently, AlphaGo, and how these these machines, in part because it's estimated that electrical circuits function at a rate a million times faster than a right. uh, biochemical uh, rate. And and you also point out that Deep Blue in 1997 was making calculations, 200 million calculations per second. And <laughs> so, so, I mean, that absurd is... Absurd number, right? We use that number all the time. It's patently an absurd number. Yeah, well, it, it defies the ability to, to comprehend what's going on because... Yeah. We've instantiated that much processing power in these machines, which you describe how these machines just are so much faster and better equipped. Actually, two ways that you point out. Can you talk about how machines that they're both their connectedness and their the fact that yeah. their memory is infallible? Th- those are two reasons that they're actually superior to the human brain. Yeah, here's something interesting for those listening on the podcast when it comes to figuring out how I do this in business and, and similar. And it's it's generally this. Actually, I actually I can't pick a topic that this isn't apropos of. What humans are good at, machines are not. And what machines are good at, humans are not. So mm-hmm. let's start there. Could you imagine, and here's an advantage a machine has. Everyone talks about the cloud. We really, you know, don't, it's like we look up in the sky and we're like, is that the cloud? It's like, no, it's just a bunch of interconnected machines that can trade information on the ground, by the way, right? I mean, a cloud is actually a great analogy, but it's not, 
again, we, it's the limits of my language, right? I carry baggage into the conversation when I'm trying to talk about cloud or consciousness or whatever it might be. So imagine the difference is this. Could you imagine if you and I could interconnect brains, what we could then comprehend or the learning and experiences and the presentation of data and everything else that we could actually have? The limit to hum- humans is we have our internal brain. That's, that's it, right? So we only have what's inside of our own brains. Computers don't have that. Computers can access the information of other computers. So they have an inherent advantage to be able to read, for instance, the entire University of Michigan library very quickly. <laughs> In addition to that, as long as it's cared and maintained, data that resides on a computer hardship, right, doesn't disappear over time, right? We can plug that in one day again. Have you ever turned on your phone 10 years later? So I still have each phone since I was about 15 years old, and I can still turn it on, provided I can plug it in and see all of that data. So machines have that advantage because as we grow old, our memory is fallible. And we've proven this in lots of academic settings too, that our memory is fallible and we get old and it just happens, you know? Machines don't deal with the biological issues that we do. So they have that advantage. But what they don't have is they don't necessarily imagine outside of their own domain of expertise. Even if it plays video games or even if it plays chess or the game of Go, it doesn't do that, right? So we have that advantage. So it's this always trade-off that's happening. Now, there's a lot of people who say, well, then put them both together. And there are plenty of experiments that show this is a really good strategy, which is why I I proselytize so much that we should understand our machines and work with them because they illuminate things we can't see. And it makes us even better because most of the tasks we do aren't really human tasks anymore anyways, (laughs) You know, a lot of job is like data entry or something. We should be doing better with our humans. We should be doing more human things mm-hmm. and, and philosophizing and teaching people and, 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 and valuing stay-at-home dads and moms and the like, right? And, and I think we have an opportunity with the rise of AI to then, you know, push our market towards stuff like that. The point is this. When you put the machine and the human together, things work out better. The best chess players play as machine and human, and they come up with strategies on their own and implementations we couldn't have done. And that's, that's the special sauce here is computers are good at computer things. Humans are good at human things. You're right. That, that barrier is really interesting to me. And it got me thinking and and researching this a little bit, you go at length into the history of the the Go, the AlphaGo program and the Chess Deep Blue program. And it is a question that comes to mind is like, how come these two applications could not be combined into one? And apparently the, the, the developers of AlphaGo rewrote the program such that it was now focused on chess and it became like mm-hmm. the world's greatest chess yeah. player in like, yep. you know, a fraction of an hour or something. So that's just remarkable. But yeah, it's like there is this real division there between tasks and, and focus. Well, I mean, it's still playing a rules-based game, right? That I can see the board on. So it's still within what I would argue its domain. Now, perhaps I've moved that definition just a touch, 
but it's still playing a rules-based game in which I can see the entire board. Yeah, one of the things that I've heard about like um, what a machine could not do that's really interesting is just think of culture and science, like creating an institution like science. I, I, I can't imagine, I can't remember who this was who described it that way, but science and discovery and technology are very human mores of our, of yeah. our culture. Make no mistake, it's creative within its domain, right? An anomaly detection algorithm that you might use in, you know, your local Excel files at your business or perhaps a a prediction algorithm to say this market is right for entry for my respective business. That's truly creative, but only in its domain, right? It's not creative more broadly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and ultimately it's going to only be as good as the data that it's given and only be able to complete the tasks that that we've designed it to complete. Well, I'm I'm conscious that we we haven't covered two topics which I think our listeners will be very interested in and those are the ways that the military and your your field are making use hmm. of AI and what you've spent the last several years working on and then, and then the second thing would be how our economy will be changed and how ready it's uh, it's already being changed by AI and and by automation. So to the first point, what are the ways that, you know, I, I'm sure a lot of this is, is classified and you're not able to share everything, but what are the ways you're able to share that the AI, uh, that uh, the military is using AI today? Well, the first thing that I would mention is that we're pretty public with what we do, right? If you Google it, we are, we, we share, we just created the joint artificial intelligence center about a year and a half ago. And its intent is to advance artificial intelligence in a meaningful way with meaningful oversight in accordance with human dignity and our laws for the Department of Defense. So a lot of people, when they say, well, the government's going to use artificial intelligence, and that that's deeply concerning. I would say, well, be a part of the conversation then, because in my mind, to say that a representative government should not use artificial intelligence, whether that's the UK or or America or Canada or something like that. I think that's patently absurd. I think to say we shouldn't use artificial intelligence to drive down redundancies and expenditures, to use artificial intelligence to make sure that we have a diversified portfolio and investments into academia and into uh, small businesses throughout the United States. I mean, the the largest provider of small business dollars is the U.S. government, right? A lot of this work uh, is is on the same principles because commercial advances it of sure object detection and natural language processing and anomaly detection and filling in missing fields i mean that's what artificial intelligence essentially is right nowadays that's all it does or to identify markets and stuff like that so so a lot of that work is is very public very accessible very open and in an institution like this an organization like this we want to share that with people and and to have a dialogue and be a part of the cause so in terms of that, that's it's trying to do business smarter, better, and more responsibly. And I will highlight that that is in stark contrast to nations of the world who don't view that to the same ends. 
who don't view it to defend human dignity, only to assert their rule, to gain economic foothold, and the like. And this does lead into your second question, Jared, which is, how does this change economically? And I'm not quite sure. I think there is an opportunity if we as a society better understand it, our intellectual foundation is larger than it is. We have a level of sophistication and precision when discussing it. Uh, I think there's a lot of positive to be had. At the same time, economically, we are dealing with competitors who are quite good at creating artificial intelligence as well. And at what point in time do we, individual we, like you and I on the phone, say perhaps capability doesn't outweigh doing right? And I believe, by the way, for business, you can do good, you can do well by doing right. But mm-hmm. if we make the trade off, in life to say, you know, that Huawei phone is pretty good. That TikTok app is pretty fun. I'm making no calls on TikTok right now, but it's worthy of a conversation. The question is, is, well, what are we giving up to do that? So the level of competition throughout the world in the rise of digital has come back to the forefront. There is competition now, unlike there once was necessarily in the industrial age and trying to keep up with our innovation of the assembly line. So the point is, is that economically, what I most think about is how do we explain and and detail the value proposition that is doing right, i.e., not sharing your data so it makes more computer vision algorithms over in China to imprison minority groups because we're on TikTok, that our vision of dignity in Western society might not have the same capability, but it's the right thing to do. And that's a lot of what I hope this book inspires. Yeah, you... This is obviously such an important territory to cover because there's a lot of ways that this <laughs> could go wrong. And, and we outlined three of them earlier. While I, I think you have always been, as long as I've known you, an optimist, and I've always been a pessimist. One of the ways that this could go wrong, which we haven't yet explored deeply, which you you talk about in your book, you point out that between 2016 and 2020, the use of industrial robots increased by 71% and across the world. And undoubtedly, that is having all kinds of job displacement effects. And it's really interesting with AI because even jobs that one would think are like at the upper echelon of our society, like radiologists, right. for example, um, or you know, the criminal justice system kind of... Uh, data analysis, those are being replaced. And I know you'll be speaking soon with for his podcast with Andrew Yang. And he he elicited a lot of uh, support because in large part because he raised issues around this about how our economy has already been, you know, upended in, in many sectors by robotics and by automation and, and increasingly by AI. And I think one of the things that he always says that like the most memorable line is this idea of the the truck driver, how in 26 states, the truck, a truck driver is the most common job in that state. 
And all it will take is probably within the next 10 years for um, Waymo or one of those companies to really deploy this uh, writ large, you know, at scale. And they could just, their jobs could be completely wiped out. And I, I think you do a really good job of kind of um, calling upon policymakers and, you know, governments to to acknowledge that. So anything you would yeah. say as far as how, how they could develop policies that could address that? Well, the first thing is that automation, that word is generally used very interchangeably with artificial intelligence. It's more like a Venn diagram. Sometimes artificial intelligence drives automation and sometimes automation sets you on a path and journey towards artificial intelligence. A lot of people think that artificial intelligence is going to replace the everyday worker. And that's just, that's not true. Automation will largely do that. And by the way, you know, AI at its core illuminates insights that you haven't generally seen. The best way to employ AI, by the way, for our businesses listening on this call right now, is to choose your subject matter experts, and it's to pick really high volume data that moves very, very fast that you need to be highly accurate on. That's a great place to start an AI project. And generally, you would have said, oh, I thought I was going to start it with the bottom of my workforce, right, proverbially speaking. And that's not, that's not the case. Automation might replace them. So, so first, we have a Venn diagram that is a chicken and the egg scenario because they both drive one another. At the same time, I think in, in the 1900s and the rise of the assembly line and the industrial age, nobody ever predicted the existence of a software developer, Right. They they said, oh, my goodness, you're taking away the jobs of these humans with these robotic tools who once put wheels onto a car. But we ended up making more jobs out of that. Maybe AI doesn't quite play itself out in that manner, but I think it might change our values. And uh, dating back to, to 2016 in a Vanity Fair uh, article, I think President Obama at the time really kind of uh, crystallized and and very very prescient about the way he saw AI playing out is that if we took away these mundane, rote, non-human tasks that many of us are per- performing every day, maybe we're going to start paying art teachers. Maybe we'll pay teachers what they deserve. Maybe we should pay stay-at-home dads, right? Maybe we move back to a more human-centric existence. Hmm. So I would say that while it will replace jobs and we need to think about preparing for the future, I think it will also create just as many jobs as it replaces, much like the assembly line did, right, and everything else. But we better plan for that right now. That's the key. We better plan for that moment. And um, when it comes to, you know, the words universal basic income, which I think you were, were floating on. Uh, listen, I, I don't disagree with it. I think that, again, universal basic income kind of comes with a connotation that doesn't quite mean what you think it means. But let's take tax accountants, for example, right? Being a tax accountant once upon a time was was a profession that would have taken you throughout your entire life, right? It was an upper middle class job. It required education. People went to college for it. They got degrees and the like. And then TurboTax comes along 
And how many people were disenfranchised hmm. by TurboTax, right? Well, maybe when you disenfranchise a workforce, you owe something back to them to retrain them or reskill them or something to that effect. So the words universal, I would, you know, universal relative to what should be more of the question. I, I think it'll, I think we have an opportunity, but if we aren't preparing our kids now, if we aren't preparing our youth for that future, then most certainly it will be detrimental. But we do have an opportunity here, provided we understand the central rudiments of what we're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. And that, I think, dovetails very closely with Yang's philosophy. So his, yeah, as you mentioned, the stay-at-home dad, there's a lot of parts of our economy or, or sectors that don't get the compensation that they maybe deserve. And it's a it's a very politically fraught you know, issue when you, you consider people who don't want to essentially subsidize such work with their own tax yeah. dollars. But I, I think you or, or Yang, maybe together, maybe you two, I think having a place in the next administration on the labor market, because the, the increasingly, you know, if we can look 100 years into the future, it's totally possible. I mean, this is maybe a pessimistic view, but it's totally possible that AI and automation will have totally disrupted the economy in ways we didn't expect. And yeah. we do be prepared for that. And it's interesting, you raised the TurboTax example. I mean, it's it's interesting to think about the number of ways that AI has already re replaced jobs. And Yuval Harari, who I know is is very much a, a peer of yours. And, and I really think of this book as kind of like a sapiens. I don't know if he's on a AI. peer, but I, but, but I very much look up to him, but yes, I appreciate it. Yeah. So he, he has a pretty dark and stark view of this and mm, I'm not yeah. going to nail it completely, but he, he talks about in an episode with, uh, with Sam Harris kind of looking towards the future. He says that there might be a, essentially a useless class of society. And this, this class will be born of people who unfortunately just don't have the skills who are doing essentially kind of the, the bottom rung jobs right now, like a cashier at Walmart is yep. just an example where yep. increasingly those jobs was, just will not be available. And in the past, the way that these, as you talked about, when the assembly line came out or when TurboTax came out, there were ways that people with high skills could manage those assembly lines or they could manage the software or they could develop the software. But what Harari imagines is that as those, you know, lower and even middle jobs become increasingly filled by AI, it's quite possible that we'll have this class of society that will either just need to be retrained completely, which I think you you kind of advocate for to some extent of job retraining and skills retraining, or, you know, there's just, there won't be much of a, a place for them. So we really, our governments need to be thinking about that and being proactive. And uh, I think this pandemic that we're currently living through is just one example about how being proactive in, in government um, <laughs> approach is so important. You're, you're, you're so spot on. I, I recently um, did a Forbes hackathon for our hometown, the city of Detroit, Jared. And it was about bridging the digital divide. And uh, in the city of Detroit, 40% of its residents do not have internet access. Well, imagine how that plays itself out, right? Imagine how detrimental that is. So when we're talking about AI and all of us are espousing our views of how it may or may not impact our future, my question to people is, what are you doing today? What are you doing tomorrow? 
What are we doing next week to make sure that people do have a place? And if it doesn't come from a place of foundational education and knowledge on the topic, then we are inevitably going to make mistakes and perhaps create a class or leave a class is probably the better word that doesn't have a meaningful place. But I would argue they do have a meaningful place. They care about family. They raise children, right? We subsidize milk in this country because it's good for your bones. Well, why don't we look at it the same way with the rise of artificial intelligence? And I think that's a meaningful call to action. And I think it's a meaningful call for why we each can and should understand the technology. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's a call to action too. I mean, I read both your report and I've read recently this McKinsey report, which essentially describes all the changes that they imagine of how automation and and AI will transform our economy. And what I would say to someone who probably to myself, we, we should take this advice too, is increasingly think about the jobs that in the future, only a human could really do. Right. Um, you know, you talked about being a teacher or being a, a, a music teacher or in healthcare that, you know, healthcare or, or being a psychotherapist or psychiatrist, like there's things that, you know, the human jobs, Exactly. And and that's actually what McKinsey talks about is there's going to be a real shift in the jobs that are that are no longer performed by humans and can be performed by AI and can be automated. And, uh, you know, 30 years from now, we, we might not have any truck drivers. And so I think for those who are young, who are starting their career, who are listening to this, or, or really no matter where you are in your career, it's probably important to think about longevity and think about whether the position that I'm currently in is is going to be available 20, 20 years from now and start preparing yourself for that reality. Absolutely. I completely agree with you on that. And, and, and that doesn't mean that you're an engineer or a scientist or a mathematician to start prepping our future, prepping your family and friends or your kids for that future, right? Um, I think I think we all have a role to play, but if we come from it without an understanding of what it is and how it works. Well, I, I think we might make mistakes. Mm-hmm. Sure. So one thing we, we, we talked about how the, the military is being very transparent, Mike, with the way it's using these technology. And I, I think philosophers or, or social observers who have studied this are increasingly concerned about the ways that the military might apply AI actually to, to weaponry and, and to, Robot, robot soldiers. There was a, an article all the way back in 2012 in The New Yorker, which was called Moral Machines. And so a, a quote I pulled out of here is um, the author states, when, if ever, might it be ethical to send robots in the place of soldiers? Robot soldiers might not only be faster, stronger, and more reliable than human beings, they would also be immune from panic and sleep deprivation and never be overcome with a desire for vengeance. Robot soldiers would also be utterly devoid of human compassion and could easily wreak unprecedented devastation in the hands of a Stalin or Paul Pot. And I think this dovetails with a, a part of the book that you spend a lot of time on, which is talking about the ways that our adversaries or, or those governments that are already not, you know, not currently aligned with Western ideals are employing AI. So on, on the topic specifically about this, this idea of autonomous weaponry or, or applying robotics to weaponry. Do you have any strong convictions about how we should think about the ethics in this area? I I do. I I think 
we don't need to make mountains out of molehills. Nothing has changed. When we talked about AI, I mentioned it was a human endeavor that generally it, it, it illuminates insights and patterns we wouldn't have otherwise seen. There's a public law of armed conflict that Western societies in the United States follows. There are public laws about automated weapons and what meaningful human oversight means. We get into this conversation about artificial intelligence, and it's almost like because of the baggage, we just throw all of it out the window. Like all of a sudden, we're not going to care about what that means when we still have laws. And we use these words like drone. By the way, you know, a drone operation generally has somewhere around 20 people observing that and making decisions off of it. it it's not doing its own thing. But unfortunately, we were, use the word drone and not a lot of people realize it. It's not one person in the cockpit. It's 20 people behind machines talking to each other about making smart decisions, right? Just, just for what it's worth. Now, there's a good argument that somebody might make if your premise is that we ultimately value the defense of human life and any human life that is lost and anything we can do to fix that, why wouldn't we use robot soldiers? Alternatively, if we go down that path, is it a slippery slope argument where we give them autonomous control to make those decisions? But the point being is nothing has changed. We operate by the laws that we have. And I'm, I'd be hard-pressed to find an implementation of artificial intelligence that compromises the laws that are currently in place anyways. So the point to all of this is, when we talk about meaningful human oversight, we are not talking about autonomous uh, systems making their own decision Terminator style. We're still talking about software that displays patterns that ultimately a human says, it does that pattern make any sense to us? And I would say that what's most important is, you know, the heart of the matter is, is it is allowed to be up to differing opinions. There is a, there is a space for dialogue in the United States. Let's celebrate that and get involved in the conversation, but please don't throw out all the rules that are already in existence. Yeah, I think that's a, I think it's both a pragmatic and a, a hopeful view that nations will observe those. To, to your knowledge, is this something that the United Nations or, you know, international bodies are already tons, working on? Tons of conversation. And it's it's something I very much address in in part three of the book of, of how we view it. And, and I would celebrate the view of humanity and human dignity in westernized nations that do come together in places like NATO and the European Union, who are talking about these rules and in place for a very long time has been laws on, you know, automated uh, weapon systems, which by the way, they do exist. Automated weapon systems have shot down commercial airliners in other countries, by the way. I wonder if maybe there is some AI underneath the hood as opposed to a yes-no decision that maybe it might not have done that, by the way, right? I mean, that makes sense. Nobody wants robots killing people. Perhaps other countries might, but I, I can assure you that the United States does not view the world that way, and nor does westernized nations. 
That's reassuring. And I feel like we've been dancing around what I thought was maybe one of the most eye-opening chapters of, of your book. And, and you did allude to it earlier with the imprisonment in, in China, mentioning the the Uyghurs, maybe if not by, by name. And I'm cognizant that this is a, a very a delicate question, but I, I did think it was one of the most um, striking chapters of your book. And I think it's something that people should be very aware of. And this kind of falls into that second bucket we were talking about, which is um, the ways that authoritarian or, or dictatorship governments might make use of this technology. And you interject a lot of great, you know, compelling, you, you always have so much history. There's a lot of history in this book, including the origins of chess, the origins of modern computing, the origins of life on this planet. And, and you actually talk about how China has been a surveillance state for some time, including during Mao Zedong's uh, Great Leap Forward. But you you describe, Mike, how under the current, um, you know, governance under Xi Jinping, it's really been ramped up in, in using AI to, to advance that. And you say, during the 21st century, using technology, the watchful eye of the Communist Party authority has become even more penetrating. Digital methods of censorship, surveillance, and social control have become unavoidable, integral parts of Chinese society. And, and someone, anyone reading this who has read 1984, as you mentioned, you make the, right. the reference. I mean, it's just striking. So could you summarize for our listeners what is happening there in China and how this poses a, a risk to spreading Western ideals? So I want to make very clear that China's use of artificial intelligence primarily through the means of surveillance to locate, to move, and to identify people who do not align with their party is unequivocally and completely unacceptable. And the world in certain places is but more broadly should be outraged by what the Chinese are doing to Uyghur citizens in detention camps across China. And most of those people are detained, not accused of any crimes or anything like that, but simply because of who they are. And while some contend that China's use of digital and AI technology shouldn't be criticized, and that Xi's government is entitled to their applications as somehow appropriate in line with their culture or their party's goals. What's happening in China, particularly in their Western regions, argue otherwise. Let's take a step back. 90% of mainland China's population is composed of Han Chinese. All Han share a very deeply rooted common genetic ancestry dating back to ancient civilizations originally inhabited in a single region. Throughout most of China's recorded history, the Han have been culturally the dominant majority. The Uyghurs that we're talking about here, on the other hand, are a minority of about 10 million people, which amounts to less than 1% of the entire Chinese population. Numbers are big. The Uyghurs live in an autonomous region called Xinjiang, and the region came under Chinese rule in about the 18th century uh, then. And most Uyghurs are Muslim. And due to their cultural differences from the Chinese majority and frictions with the Communist Party and central government, they have been identified as separatist groups since the 1990s and the fall of the Soviet Union. And now you see extreme human rights abuses 
against them. And because of where they come from and, and how they descend and their natural features, using computer vision is pretty easy to identify them throughout all of China. And there are currently more than a million Uyghur citizens in detention camps across China right now. And they claim that these are vocational education centers. But much to your reference of 1984, they are identified through artificial intelligence, and then they are moved there and put there to the means of what the party identifies. At what point do we talk about this? Two weeks ago, it was a John Oliver special on Last Week Tonight, and it, it heartened me while also broke my heart that most people don't know what's going on. That's how AI works today. That's 1984. That's dystopian society being played out every single day in authoritarian rule. And that is something that we all have a responsibility to understand how that could happen and then raise the flag and our voices against issues like that. Now, when we hop on Chinese companies' applications, and remember this idea of the more data, the better AI, we are informing those algorithms to do exactly that purpose. So for anyone in the AI chain, I believe you have a responsibility morally and ethically and simply as that invisible human line to talk about this and to ensure that that is not something that's being played out with the data you're providing. Mm, yeah, really, really powerful. And another aspect of this, which was is very 1984, like that you outline is this kind of uh, mandatory usage of, of certain apps and the by the government to learn about the government and to like kind of worship oh, the right. government. Of course. And this the the second component is I don't watch much TV at all, but I've heard that there's an episode of the program Black Mirror that I, I don't know what came first, but you describe, which I, I was not aware of at all, you describe this kind of like social um capital. Social credit, that, of course. Yep. Yeah. It, it's like every <laughs> every part of your life in terms of <laughs> it, it's not really like I mean it's it's partly like are you a good Samaritan, are you a good citizen? But it's mostly like right. are you being um devoted or you know, are you showing yep. uh fealty to, to the party's the, policies? Yeah, and that is I mean, that is some scary stuff. And I, I'm sure well, I, I'm sure if we weren't recording this, you would have some uh thoughts, robust thoughts on, you know, US intervention and, and <laughs> all that. It's not it's not my place to make to make any policy considerations or decisions, and that's that's not what we're here to talk about. But I will say this. It's almost hard to imagine for the everyday person what a phone looks like or your digital uh, identity in China looks like as opposed to America when you go there. You and I, right, if I looked at my phone, I have Uber Eats, I could have Postmates, I, I, I got Twitter, but I can also use Facebook or LinkedIn or something like that, right, or Snapchat or whatever. We have options. There's no such thing in China. Imagine this. They have a platform called WeChat, and if you wanted to get a dog sitter, which I know you're dealing with at the current moment, Jared, <laughs> yeah. and you wanted to order food, and then you wanted to go to the store and buy something, or you wanted a babysitter, or you wanted to WhatsApp your friend, 
or text someone or call someone. It's all on one app, completely monitored by the party. Most of us deal in the world of using our credit cards and cash and everything else. China's largely a cashless society. They are on that chat, on that application called WeChat. Every single interaction is monitored, digitally recorded, and it is owned by the party themselves. It's almost hard to fathom, but it's also easy to understand just how much and authority and just the type of things they can do in the surveillance world, right? And then if you couple that with China through their Belt Road Initiative, outsourcing and selling that type of technology to other nations, you can see the concerns that are at hand and how it's possible to see early 1984 societies existing in 2020. Democracy dies in darkness. Democracy dies without voices. Mm -hmm. How can we help support those voices abroad by saying this use of technology in this manner is completely unacceptable? And we won't use technology or companies that adhere to these standards like Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent, which they do. That's how it works. And I think that's, that's what we're seeing come to rise it's just, do we have the understanding of exactly how that's playing out every single day? Yeah, it's scary, alarming stuff that is happening. And, and I hope people do not close their eyes to it. And I, I, I think this book really could serve as a, a wake up call about what's at stake. And you, you make that clear. And one thing we haven't gotten time to get into is the uh, you you talk about the ways that Russia employed AI and bots to undermine our democracy in 2016? It's not surprising what happened in 2016 and what's happening. I think this year to a, maybe a lesser degree because of how it was exposed. But yeah, if it's public policy, then <laughs> it's it's right there for everyone to see. Well, Mike, you've been um, really generous with your time, and this has been a fascinating conversation. Like your book, we've touched on many areas, many thought provoking areas, and it, it will be very interesting to see. You know, when we sit down, when we're hopefully you know sixty, seventy years old, and hopefully the world is in a good place, it'll be interesting to see how much of what we said today is uh, still true or how much is just totally, <laughs> we, we, we got totally wrong. Jared, I appreciate uh, you having me here today. In a lot of ways, it is a complete full circle to the point earlier. And uh, I, I can't wait to see you next, my friend. Me too. And so I just wanted to end with one last kind of, you know, general question is like, any last thoughts that you have about how we should proceed or how, you know, a, a, like one message that you want to leave our, our listeners with uh, that they would remember. It's the last paragraph of the first words of the book. And there, and I rarely read from something, but it's this. Our focus now must be to openly address the current realities of AI to ensure as well as we can that it is implemented only in ways consistent with fundamental human dignities and only for purposes consistent with democratic ideals, liberties, and laws. My hope is that this conversation makes you maybe think about that a little bit, and the book itself helps enable and inspire that. I think it will. And 
so where where can people find you? Where I know you're active oh, yeah. on LinkedIn and Twitter. Uh, where can they you know go buy the book? I had mentioned they are. It is available at booksellers everywhere. I will say though, local bookstores mean something to local communities. If you have the opportunity, order from a local bookstore. Help them out. Um, of course, it's on Amazon too, and Barnes and Noble and the like. Uh, in addition to that, you can find me at, at Michael J. Kanan on Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And, you know, launching a book in COVID is always interesting. It is much like what we are doing here. So share pictures with the book, share your thoughts with the book, hashtag T minus AI or anything like that. And um, I just can't wait to hear what people think. Join the All Things Connected podcast, there's many ways you can show your support. You can write a review on Apple Podcasts or on Stitcher, wherever you listen. You can share it with a friend or talk about it on your own podcast. You can post about it on social media, such as sharing your favorite episode. Or you can support it directly on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash all things connected. Thank you very much. Your support is much appreciated.